Um, today's scripture reading comes from Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, the message. Just take off. Sorry. Uh, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name, Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great. Be called son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule Jacob's house forever. No end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, But how? I've never slept with a man. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest ho hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called Holy Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing, you see, is impossible with God. And Mary said, Yes, I see it all now. I am the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me, just as you say. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. My firstborn child, Colby, who happens to be in the audience today. Yeah. When I was pregnant with him on the morning that we, it was on a Sunday morning, and I had been uh, contracting for two hours. They were five minutes apart, and that was the trick back then in the day. I don't even know what it is now. But back then, it was they had to be five minutes apart for two hours, and then you go. So we lived in Belmont at the time, and the hospital was in Tupelo, Mississippi, which was about 45 minutes away. So we get in the car, me and Colby's dad and my mother, and we head to Tupelo. And so we're listening to the radio. I'm contracting pretty bad by this point, and uh, they're getting worse, and I'm thinking... Oh, no, we're not going to make it in time. That's what all first mothers think I've come to learn. So <clears throat> on the way there, there was a song that played on the radio, a song that I have never liked, I still don't like. I don't even really care for the musician. But for whatever reason, it was playing that morning, and it got stuck in my head. For the next 52 or 102 hours of labor, I forgot. I lost count. It's traumatic, you know what I'm talking about if you've been there. It was the song, I Should Have Been a Cowboy by Toby Keith. <laughs> so there it was in my head while I'm birthing this firstborn child is, I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. Wearing my six-shooter, riding my pony on a cattle drive. Stealing the young girl's hearts. Just like Gene and Roy singing those campfire songs, whoa, I should have been a cowboy. I don't care for guns. I never want to rope. I don't, I'm terrified of horses. None of this is interesting to me, but it was there. And as the, as the pains got worse, I'm like, what's a Jesus song I can latch onto in my head? So I, I try out different ones. None of them latch because if there's ever a time in your life when you need Jesus, it's then. But Jesus was not sticking in my head. 
it was Toby Keith. You know, of course now, that song has a special place in my heart. Toby, you probably never even heard that song, have you? Okay. You need to go listen to that. That's a part of your history. It's important. <laughs> Music has power, right? It can take us back to a moment, good and bad moments. It confronts us. It comforts us. It motivates us. How can we not feel something when we hear John Lennon's Imagine? Or even Cupid's Shuffle. I told Tara we were going to do to the right, to the right, to the right. I mean, I mean do, don't you get happy when you hear that? To the left, to the left. Okay, I do. Y'all might be weirder than me. I don't know. But I, I get excited. Or when I hear the first few bars of this particular song, it takes me right back to 19, 20 years old, hanging out with my friends and establishments we had no business being in, but that was the South. You might have those stories too, and you would hear, blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair. Thank you. <laughs> Friends in low places. Terry, you said you've never even heard it, right? You're missing out on some good stuff. Isn't that good stuff? You're missing out, buddy. Oh. Yes, the alternate ending is amazing, too. For those of you at home, you might want to Google that. So, what's a special song for you? And if you wouldn't mind sharing that and tell us why. What's a song that takes you to a moment? Oh, music has that power, right? And so, in the story of the Grinch, on the morning of Christmas... You know, he's waiting with glee up on top of his Mount Crumpet, just waiting to hear the Who's scream and wail out in suffering and pain and awfulness. Their Christmas gifts are gone, their Christmas trees, their decorations, their food, everything's gone. And he's just waiting to hear the screams and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. He's imagining what their faces are going to look like when they realize everything's gone. Except that doesn't happen. He instead, he hears them singing. For the Grinch, music disarms him. In one second, his glee is gone. His imaginings of horror, gone. He forgets his dastardly plan to ruin Christmas, his need for revenge. Music has left the Grinch speechless. The hate in his heart is dissipating, and it's growing two sizes. So this is how it goes. 3,000 feet up, up the side, side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. Poo-poo to the who's, he was grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up, and I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open, open for a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear, and he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. The sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry, 
It couldn't be so, but it was Mary, very. He stared down at Whoville, the Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or another, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. Then he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light. And he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch carved the roast beast. For the Christian, Advent is not just about waiting, about the hope that keeps us moving, about the joy that can be ours, about the peace that has come and the love that became flesh and dwelled among us. It's also about anticipating what is to come, that God's kingdom is available to us here and now, not just then and there. Advent is also looking back so we can understand our history, so we can look with, future, with confidence into the future for that love, joy, hope, and peace. And so I've been reading a book this Christmas that um, I recommend you grab. It's been really good. It's a new writer. It's called The First Advent in Palestine. Her name is Kelly Nikondeha. I've been practicing how to say that right. I have it like, anyway, her name is Kelly Nikondeha. And it's been really, really good. And what I want to share with you this morning is looking back. What was the scene of that first Christmas? And to understand exactly what that might have meant, we have to go back to the story of the Maccabees. You know, Protestant Christians, we have been historically taught that between the Old and the New Testament that there was over 400 years of silence from God. It's called the intertestamal. Intertestate, whatever, is some kind of period. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's fancy. From Malachi to Matthew, crickets. And then Jesus is born. It's all dark and silent, and then we get to the Christmas story. But it really wasn't that silent. There was a whole lot going on during those, four, during those 400 years. Nikondeha says, The first advent began in darkness and danger. Before light or its warmth came, warmth came, generations of the Jewish people of Judea suffered at the hands of one empire or another. Each, each successive generation endured another wave of occupation. More sons lost in battle, more land confiscated, more hopes dashed. First the Greeks, then the Egyptians, then the Seleucids. Each took their turn. 
Invaders raised towns. They enslaved women and children. Some crucified the rebels. Advent would come to a traumatized landscape and people, but not quite yet. What the Protestants have missed is those 400 years in between where we get the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha, we read the history of the Jewish people and it was anything but silent. These are stories of people trying to survive. They had no real freedom. They lived in fear and in torment. They were enslaved. And I think that we should think through the world that Jesus was born into, the history, the suffering, the injustice, the isolation, and the feelings of abandonment. That Advent, on a deeper level, is a level of lament and hopelessness that Jesus was born into. In the first and second book of the Maccabees, the Seleucid Empire reigns, bringing persecution and economic exploitation to the Jewish people. In other words, same old, same old. Antiochus Epiphanes was the king, and he was a terrible human being. And just as an aside here, Antiochus Epiphanes is the Antichrist in the Left Behind novels. Tim LaHaye saw Antiochus as a figure still to come, not as an actual historical figure that had already been. And that's where that whole story gets completely undone. After winning a battle in Egypt, Antiochus rode a horse into the temple of Judea, trampling over everything. In the temple, there was a place where a fire was lit on the golden lampstand, and it burned continually. It was called the everlasting flame, and it symbolized the presence of God. It symbolized to the Jewish people that God was with them. Even in the worst times, God was with them. Antiochus snuffs out the flame and takes the golden lampstand, lampstand with him. He literally took the light from God's people. He took God's symbolic presence away. The book of Maccabees tell us on that day that weddings and birthday celebrations were canceled. Dirges were heard throughout the land along with wailing and grief. It completely changed everything. Nikon Deha says, we need to see that grief work is the seedbed for Advent hope. We cannot grasp the fullness of the Advent narratives to come without attending to the brokenness of our world. Lament is how we name and honor what has been lost or taken from us by one empire or another. I did not grow up with a longest night service. We were Southern Baptists, and I assume we didn't do that kind of thing because maybe it was too Catholic-y. I don't know. We won't get into all that. But I love that we do the longest night service here. I just think it is such an honest way of dealing with the hard stuff at Christmas. It's just a way that we come together as a community and say, this is hard for me. I am grieving. This is not easy for me. But I am here because I want you as a community to grieve with me. So I encourage you just for this Wednesday night, if you're having the grandest Christmas you've ever had, things are good. Come anyway, because the people that are here that will be grieving and has not been so grand, they need to know that you care. They need to see your face here. They need to have your arms wrapped around them to know that they can keep going. In the longest night service, I feel authenticity. And there is hope when we proclaim that together in that space that 
it gives us courage to move forward. I'm really looking forward to the longest night service this week because our teaching team, uh, Brian and Vicki and Mandy and JJ and Chris, have, have uh, set up the longest night service. It's really creative and really nice this year. I think you'll get a lot out of it, and I hope you can come. So Antiochus, about two years later from this time, after he's taken the golden lampstand, he comes back two years later and he destroys the city. They set the city on fire and tear down the high walls. Now, the high walls were their protection. So when he tore down those high walls, they are unprotected. The women and children were taken captive and their bodies were violated. And this time Antiochus goes into the temple and sacrifices pigs on their altar. The walls were replaced by Seleucid walls, turning the city of David into a Seleucid citadel. The king and his men go from town to town, forcing the priest to sacrifice to their gods and forsake Yahweh. So Matthias, the father of the Maccabean clan, is a priest. And when he's confronted with this, he refuses. There's a, another priest there with him that says, I I'll do it, I I'll do it. And Matthias kills that priest, and he kills another government official, refusing to bow down to anybody but Yahweh. So because of this, Matthias and his five sons, they flee to the mountains, and they gather up this ragtag band of army, and they use guerrilla-style tactics to go through the region, take, trying to take their land back, trying to take their bad land back. They lose a lot of battles including their father, Matthias, dies in these battles. However, in the end, they win. And this story reminds me a lot of Ukraine. <laughs> like, Ukraine is actually still fighting. That You would have thought that would have happened in a, a week, right? But they're still there. This is kind of the same story. This is David and Goliath. And they win. And for the first time in centuries, the Jewish people experience liberation from foreign rulers. Can you imagine how that might have felt to them in that moment? We, we are free to worship how we want to. We are free to worship. We're free to do. We have no chains, no, no uh, uh, metamorphical chains. We are free. And so the Jewish people began the work of restoration, repairing the temple, restoring their land, reclaiming their ownership, relinquishing their fear, and relishing in their freedom. I like some alliteration, by the way. But the people's hope for peace did not last long. The leader of the revolt after Matthias dies is one of his sons named, named Judah, and his nickname was the Hammer. Any guess as to why they called him the Hammer? Because he killed and squashed anything in his sights. He was the Hammer. And at the end of all this, when they're gone, we have peace, we have freedom, Judah wasn't finished hammering. So him and his, and his brothers, they go around the region and they're forcing people to adapt to their religion. So they're forced conversions in the land. They are forced circumcisions. There were power struggles among themselves and so much needless bloodshed. They had peace, but it wasn't enough. The violence kept going. As Nikondeia says, the pain that initially pushed them, the Maccabees, toward violence, continued to manifest in their tenure. 
And this was not what God's peace was supposed to look like. The light shined, but dimly. Eventually, the Maccabees are run out by the Romans, and then the Jewish people would suffer again under a foreign empire. All darkness, all persecution, all isolation, all suffering. A round of violence only perpetuated more violence. I think it's important to note that this story of the Maccabees can teach us something about justice and restoration. One of my favorite things about Imago when I interviewed for the job was hearing about the work that you were already doing in this community, in Honduras and other places, to work toward uh, fixing broken systems so that the world could be better for others that were marginalized or uh, in poverty or unsheltered. I was absolutely taken with that idea, and I think it's, I know we're not supposed to be, like, proud. I know we're supposed to be humble or whatever, but if there's one thing that I'm really proud of at Imago, it's the work that you all do in this community and beyond to level the playing field for people. You really have a heart for that. You see it when others don't. You see it sometimes when I don't. And I love that about you. And we see the injustices. We see these things. We see the prejudice. And it rightfully makes us angry. And so we work to topple those systemic oppression and injustice. But in that process, we have to be careful that we don't become retaliatory that we don't demonize the oppressors, but make space for them to see the evil of the system that they are a part of and hope that they can come alongside us in this fight. Now, when I say this, to not be retaliatory, to not demonize oppressors, I'm not asking you to like them. I'm not asking you to go out to dinner with them. I'm not asking you to go play cards with them. I'm just asking if we would try not to do the thing that they are doing to people that we love, that we not demonize them, to make space for God to do work in that person's life. It's hard. Is it not? Is it not hard? It's hard. But the Maccabees lost their way on their path of finding justice, fighting for justice. And we can too. We have to be careful. So at the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, we see that the Grinch is at the head of the Whoville table carving the roast beast, as if he's the guest of honor. He's been welcomed to the table, to the party, to their community. Who would blame the Who's for rejecting the Grinch? I mean, he stole their stuff, right? They could have easily said, well, thanks for bringing our stuff back, but now here's the police, go to jail. Or they could have said, you're lucky we don't put you in jail. Or they could have said, Thank you for bringing back the stuff you bought. Now get out of our face. And there would be nothing wrong with any of those things. But since it's a children's story, we don't do that, right? It's a little bit more fantasy. They should have been skeptical of the Grinch, of his motives, but they aren't. And this children's book, just like all children's books, needs a happy ending. But what I love about the story of the Grinch is the Who's get to decide how the story will end, not the Grinch. The Who's get to decide. And they decide to let him sit at their table and be a part of their community. Now, they chose to forgive. They chose reconciliation. We could say that the story of the Grinch is about over-commercialization of Christmas, that Christmas is more than spending money on gifts, but I think we miss it if we think that's the only lesson from the Grinch. 
Their truer takeaway is forgiveness and reconciliation. Their truer takeaway is the Grinch is judging things by the way they look, not by how they are. You see, the Grinch didn't know the Who's. He only saw them from a distance. And the Who's didn't know the Grinch. They knew about him, but they had nothing to do with him, which is a whole other sermon in and of itself. The Grinch was far removed, way up on that mountain, and he could judge away about their motives, about their inclinations, about the things they did and didn't do, because he was not in community with them. I think because he was so far away, so far removed, it's an affliction that we have in 2022. We judge against people who we do not know personally. I'm going to get really personal here. If you know me for longer than five minutes, you know that's just what I do. I didn't speak out harshly against a queer person when I was more of a fundamentalist. But I absolutely laughed at the jokes and the jabs. I absolutely did not stand up for a gay person who was being mocked in my presence. And that all changed when my son was outed to me. I remember preaching the Sunday after the Christine Blasey Ford testimony in the Brett Kavanaugh debacle. And I, I could not, as a woman, stand up in front of a, a congregation and not say something. I had to. The first person to come, after, come up to me after the service was a woman who said, I could tell she was lying a mile away. You don't act like that if you're sexually assaulted. You tell your parents, you tell the police. And I very quietly asked her, in a rare moment of courage, <laughs> trust me, this is rare, I asked her, have you ever been sexually assaulted? No. I told her as someone who has been assaulted at the age of 15, the age of Christine Blasey Ford, every word felt true to me. She had nothing to say to that. We judge one another based on how we vote. We assume things about people that just might not be there. I, I see the fighting on Twitter and Facebook. You do too. You can't be a Christian and vote for a Democrat because they are baby killers. Or people declaring that you can't vote for a Republican because they're all bigots. Or whatever declaration they choose to make that day. When the truth is much more nuanced than this. If you're a Republican, do you have any family members or friends who lean more Democratic? If you don't, you should. If you're a Democrat, do you have any friends or family members who are Republican? Then you should. Now, I'm not talking about combative, crazy people, okay? I'm not asking you to be friends with some crazy folks. But I am asking that we allow ourselves to be in situations where we might hear our, our, our views being challenged. If we have, to, we have to actively fight against this tribalism that we're in right now, if we don't, we risk becoming like the Grinch. Up our mountain, judging away, we're not in community with them, and we miss who they really are. The Grinch judged the Who's harshly, wrongly, without love, without benefit of the doubt. He assumed that they thought Christmas was an excess of gifts, food, lights, bows, and trees. But the who's never thought that at all. 
They were just having fun. They were just enjoying the season, and they liked being with each other. And instead of slamming the door in the Grinch's face when he returned all their stuff, they invited him to the table with him, gave him a seat of honor, made him a part of the community. And so I'm asking myself this morning, who do I need to forgive this Christmas? Who do I need to be reconciled to? And let me say this too. I know how that can land. We, are not, we do not need to be reconciled to every single person. Okay? Forgiveness is ours to do. And we, that's a timetable, not overnight. Reconciliation is different. Some of us have family members that are absolute... Oh, I was going to say a bad word. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm thinking, right? I'm not asking you to be reconciled to them if they're going to continue to be that way. For your own sanity, for your own walk with Jesus, don't. Who do I need to stop judging from afar? As Oshetta Moore says, who is on the other side of my compassion? Advent is about a God wrapped in the flesh of a helpless baby who came to us to save us from our endless cycles of violence, even the vi endless violent cycles of our words, of our rhetoric, to show us a better way, to teach us how to love and forgive and give people the benefit of the doubt, to show us how to give a wide space for the not-so-good people, to give them a chance to change. He came to show us that judging and writing people off is not what he would do when he walked this earth. He came to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us.